Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, December 1st, 2023. Already December. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how are we doing today? Matty, I am doing fantastic on this wonderful Friday. Happy December, everybody. And we don't have a Monday show this week, so I'm going to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah in advance uh, this Thursday, this upcoming Thursday. So happy Hanukkah, everybody. And with that, let's also wish everyone a happy start to the holiday season. You know, December's got a lot of a lot of holy days. We got yes. eight of them for Hanukkah. We have uh, two of them, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And we got Kwanzaa, December 26th. So uh, Boxing Day. Boxing Day is also December Boxing 26th, Day. I believe. Yep. Uh, you also missed another one. Um, Santa Nicola is on the 6th, St. Nicholas Day. So that's my name day. I would get a gift if we lived in Italy, but I don't, so I'm not going to get anything. Pretty cool. That's kind of that's kind of messed up by by your folks. Yeah, we just never celebrated it. So what are you going to do? Well, let's start celebrating it. All right, deal. Yeah, you want to get me a gift? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send something your way before Secret Santa. <laughs> okay, good. There we go. And then also the Immaculate Conception um, is next Friday. I guess I'm I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, yeah, that's where that's where we're at, folks. Wait, is the Immaculate Conception when Mary was like became pregnant? Yes. She was pregnant for three weeks. Dude, that's sometimes that's all it takes, Matt. You you just <laughs> you just don't you just don't get it. I don't get it. Also, yesterday was the start of COP twenty eight. We're not gonna talk about it very much today, um, because we have a, a whole episode coming up in two weeks from today, but we'll get a little bit into that at the start of our uh I'm sorry, at the end of our first story. Yeah, that's everything we got going on in December. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Want to want to hit some people with some good stuff after the break? Let's do it. All right, stay tuned. Quick correction before we get into our quick hits for the day. Uh, the Immaculate Conception actually referred to the day that the Virgin Mary herself was conceived, not that Jesus's uh, conception was on December 8th um, by the Virgin Mary. So I had to clear that up. Just some simple housekeeping we had to get to before we got into the show. Uh, but let's actually get into it now. Let's get right into it. It's time for our quick hits now. The first one is by Delgar Erdnasana of the New York Times, who writes, health risks linked to climate change are getting worse. Experts warn. Uh, let me preface this by saying this is the this is the wrong way to look at this almost because like it sucks that this is something we're reading about. But I, I love reading stories about this because in grad school, one of the things that I really loved focusing on was this link between climate change and human health and, you know, how, how switching to renewable energy and fixing the whole air pollution every single time we, we power anything, um, how that all kind of ties together. So I love to see people who are a lot smarter than me and can explain things a lot more simply than I can actually doing that and letting me read about it. <laughs> so a team of 114 international researchers found that climate change continues to worsen public health and increase global mortality rates. The report, known as the 2023 Lancet Countdown, found that more people are now exposed to extreme heat, 
with older people and infants now exposed twice as many heat waves days than they did from 1986 to 2005. Heat-related deaths have increased by 85% since the 1990s. Productivity decreases due to heat have resulted in roughly $863 billion in losses worldwide, and an estimated 127 million more people experience food insecurity linked to heat waves and droughts compared to 1981 to 2010. The Times article that we linked in your show notes says that this new data can help fill a gap for federal policymakers but would likely require more research on real health outcomes. This report mostly measures exposures. The Lancet countdown also included projections this year for the first time ever and said if global temperatures reach 2 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels, the number of heat-related deaths will increase by 370% by 2050. Yeah, so pretty important that we, you know, fight this whole climate change thing that we've been doing the show on for three years. <laughs> this is also really important because unless we drastically, and I mean drastically, decrease our fossil fuel usage, two degrees of warming is becoming more and more likely. Reducing our reliance on fossil fuels won't just address global warming, but it will decrease deaths related to air pollution, which have already decreased 15% since 2005. And this article says that that is mostly because of less coal pollution. You know, if we stop burning more coal, we stop burning more gas, we stop burning fossil fuels in general, the entire air quality around the world is going to improve. And with that, we're going to have a lot less pollution related impacts from public uh, with public health. That goes along with, you know, decreasing our emissions means that not right away because these greenhouse gases hang out in the atmosphere for a long time, but eventually we'll start to see temperatures decrease again. And with that, heat-related deaths will decrease as well. Yeah, and this is something we talk about all the time, how climate change is going to affect you know, our health on this earth, how we're going to be in contact with all different new species and how animals will be in contact with all other new species and all this stuff. But we just we forget all the time about how simple it is, like just heat, heat alone. Yeah. Heat and then mixing with pollution, which are together more powerful and more destructive than just one on its own. Um, so yeah, this is a a major, major issue and, you know, something that we always talk about on the show, but something we just, it needs to be addressed. So, yeah. And I think something you're kind of alluding to there is we do talk about it a lot and we still don't talk about it enough. Yeah. Right. It's something that everyone is facing all the time now. And, you know, it's easy for us in in a wealthy nation, you know, in in two places with pretty good energy systems Mm -hmm. to say, oh, it's super hot outside today. I'm going to turn my air on. I'm going to turn my ceiling fan on. Not yeah. everyone can do that. Not everyone can afford to do that. And, and and even within, you know, where I live, where you live, there are people that can't afford to do that. There are people who are struggling to live paycheck to paycheck who can't afford to turn their air on sometimes. Absolutely. You know, we think of air conditioning as this luxury, right? It's something that makes things better, but it's starting to become more and more of a necessity when you see more places experience extreme heat all the time. I, th- I think, uh, was it on Wednesday of this week? NPR's Up First was talking about just how hot everything is getting. And the U.S. Southeast is supposed to experience 35 extra days of 95 degree days throughout the year um, if we don't limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And wow. I'm going off memory there. I didn't take notes on the podcast listen, that I was listening to as I was making breakfast, but like it's something along <laughs> those you're not lines. not a psychopath. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but it's something along those lines where, y- you know, 
it's going to get really hot and people are going to get sick. People are going to die because of it. So heat isn't necessarily something that we always think of when we think of the major problems with climate change. You know, we think of drought, we think of Mm -hmm. um, sea level rise, we think of flooding, we think of worsening storms, but even just heat without it leading to heat waves, without it leading to heat domes, without it leading to drought, heat in general puts a strain on people, puts a strain on our energy systems. It puts a strain on just our, our way of life. Yeah, absolutely. So closing point here is some, some bad news about all this is that it's even more relevant right now than we would like it to be as it appears that the planet briefly went over two degrees Celsius of warming on November 18th and November 19th for the first time. The good news is this report that came out is likely to be discussed at COP28, which, like we mentioned at the top of the show, began yesterday. By the time you're listening, we are going to cover it in full two weeks from today on December 15th. The only point I want to make right now, because I think it's kind of pressing, most of our listenership is based in the U.S., President Biden is not going to COP28. And if you're not as well-versed on this sort of thing, it's not you know what, what you, you do for your day job or your podcasting hobby you might think that's awful that he's not there. Here's where I'm going to tell you, don't worry. We're sending John Kerry, who was the chief negotiator during the Paris Agreement for the U.S. John Kerry's job as U.S. climate envoy is to be the top climate policy negotiator in the country. Who better to go serve the U.S. at COP28 than the person whose literal job it is to be that guy? So, yes, I would love if Joe Biden was there because it's important for the president to show that he cares about this. This is a priority for him. But I think if we're talking about who is the most qualified, who is going to do the best job there, I'm sending John Kerry and I'm glad that John Kerry is the one that's there. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. No better man for the job. Let Kerry cook. (laughs) That sounds like an old football player's name, like a quarterback from like the (laughs) 90s, Kerry Cook. It does. All right. Let's get into our next story from CNN's Mary Gilbert, who writes, Microplastics could trigger cloud formation and affect the weather. New study suggests. We've covered microplastics quite a bit on the show and how they're found in clouds, in the deepest depths of our oceans, on the summit of Mount Everest. And now CNN's meteorology team is reporting that microplastics are able to influence the weather. A majority of cloud samples taken from a mountaintop in China were found to contain microplastics, which could play a role in the actual cloud formation. Gilbert writes that clouds are responsible for producing rain and snow, blocking sunlight, and keeping temperatures cooler. Normally, clouds form by water vapor turning into water droplets and eventually water. Vapor becomes droplets by interacting with dust, ash, or salt. This new study says microplastics can also form these droplets. So... Something we've talked about before on the show, I think you actually brought it up recently, is that we eat a credit card of microplastic in a year, which is, in one word, it's just jarring. Like, just picturing eating a whole credit card, like, is disgusting in its own right, but it just tells you how much these little microplastics play into every little thing that we do on this planet. Yeah, it comes back to bioaccumulation. Like you think of microplastics break down from plastics and get into our waterways, get into the basis of our ecosystems out in the soils. And you have bottom feeders, you have fish on land, you have insects that are that are eating these plastics. Mm-hmm. 
And then you have those larger animals that are eating those larger animals, eating those larger animals. And eventually it works its way up the food chain where we are eating fish. We are eating meat, whatever it is. We're eating plants that grow in fields that have microplastics in them. Like that's how we're ingesting all this. So yeah, like it sucks, but when you think of it, it makes sense. You know, we have such a plastic dependent world, a plastic dependent economy, plastic dependent society, whatever you want to look at it as. Yeah. We rely on plastic for everything. And because of that, like we are facing the fallout. And I wonder if plastic is the thing that, you know, sometimes we'll talk to our parents and I'm using this as like, not just me and you, like listeners as well. I'm sure we've all had that conversation where you talk to your parents and you're like, why'd you do this? And you're like, you know, I, I don't know. Everyone did. And we just didn't know any better. Like, I, I wonder if plastics are the thing that we're all going to look back on and be like, we had glass, we had aluminum, we had things that were, that were better. Right. Why? Like, just because it's cheaper and easier to produce, like, did we not know any better? Or did we really just sacrifice it all to the dollar? I, yeah. I don't know, you know? And, and I, I, I just wonder if this is going to be that thing we all look back on one day, like really wish we didn't <laughs> just dive headfirst into the whole plastic everything. Yeah, seriously. All right. So no environmental policy roundup this week uh, for two reasons. One, we're going to do an entire episode on environmental policy in two weeks when we cover COP28. Uh, and, and two, there's a lot of stories that are based on renewable energy this week that were important that we didn't want to do a full five, 10 minute segment on. So it is time for this week's renewable energy roundup. Arizona is set to combat water scarcity and bolster renewable energy across the state by implementing a solar over canal project. The project will be a collaboration between the Gila River Indian community, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Arizona Department of Water Resources. The 1,000 feet of solar panels in phase one are going to act as a barrier to prevent water evaporation while producing clean electricity for the state. Solar panel prices could drop to 10 cents per watt by the end of 2024, according to Tim Buckley, the director of climate energy finance. This comes with increased pressure from governments, increased solar manufacturing capacity, and the potential to close down older facilities that cannot keep up with the advantages of mass production. Battery storage has often been looked at as that next important step in increasing renewable energy capacity across the U.S. and across the world. Giant batteries are now becoming cheap enough to make developers question the economics behind gas-fired generation globally. In the first half of this year, 68 gas power plant projects were put on hold or canceled across the world. If battery backup becomes cheaper or even the same cost as gas for backup power generation, then the investment in a dying industry in fossil fuels starts to make less and less sense. Yeah, I mean, a big part of the renewable energy switch is, like you said, battery storage. And a lot of those materials, like nickel and cobalt and all these other um, minerals and stuff, or metals, I should say, are coming from mines and, and such in China and, and other places in the world. So it is important to remember, like, we have to be conscious of how we're farming the, these and that we're not doing more damage to the environment while we do it. But I still think even with, with everything that's, that's been going on, it, it is worth it to keep mining for these, these, uh, these, these minerals and, and metals. Yeah. 100%. And as always, all three of those stories are in your show notes. If you want to read any of them for more detail, Nick and I are going to take a quick break and we have two more stories for you when we get back. 
go listen to this new ad read because we have a new promo with Vala Alta. Um, go check it out. Easier link. Don't have to type anything in. And it's a great, great time to get someone you love a handkerchief for whatever gift giving occasion it is, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Nick's name day, Secret Santa, you know, something at the office where like you really don't want to do Secret Santa and then you get peer pressured into it. Get someone a handkerchief. It's sustainable. It's it's way better to use than a tissue. Go listen to Ad Read. We'll explain more during that. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash TPT for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Bayer ordered to pay $1.56 billion in latest U.S. trial loss over Roundup weed killer from Tom Halls of Reuters. A judge in Missouri ruled that Bayer must pay $1.56 billion to four plaintiffs claiming that their use of Monsanto Roundup weed killer causes injuries, which include cancer. The judge found that Bayer was liable for negligence, design defects, and failing to warn plaintiffs of the dangers of using Roundup. While the damages could be reduced on appeals, this is now the fourth time in a row that Bayer has been taken to court and found liable. Bayer maintains that it has decades of studies showing that Roundup and its active ingredient, glyphosate, are safe for human use. Around 165,000 claims have been made against the company for personal injuries allegedly caused by Roundup which Bayer acquired as part of its $63 billion purchase of agrochemical company Monsanto in 2018. There are still around 50,000 claims remaining against the company. So what's interesting here is like we've we've known about the damages of Monsanto Roundup for years, and, and I don't want to harbor too much on, on this. Like All I'm going to say is right now, this is a win for the good guys. This is a win for, for the four consecutive cases, but it would be a lot better if instead of paying out $1.56 billion in damages, which is, is, is deserved. Yeah. Like the people who are getting paid out, this deserve to get paid out for this because of what they have been through by using a material that was basically broadcasted as, as safe and, you know, good to use on your lawn. Bayer knew Monsanto knew. Yeah. And what I was getting at before I started that little tangent is like, it would be way better if people just did the right thing. Right. If, if you didn't have to get paid out for getting cancer, like personally, 
I would rather not get cancer than get paid more than whatever my cancer treatment cost. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it, it's not the right way to look at this. It's like, well, yeah, they did something really wrong, but they, they paid for it. They made up for it. Like, is it fair? No. Is it justice? No. Is it like the bare minimum that they could do? Probably. So I'm glad that they were found liable. I'm glad that they're continuing to be found liable. But what I'm hopeful for in the future is that rather than just make them pay, you know, whatever that fee is, whatever that fine is going to be, mm-hmm. let's make some real lasting change by banning Roundup or or by changing the chemical composition of that weed killer so that it doesn't linger in soils and, and ruin the water supply and put children at risk for playing in their lawn. Like if you're using something that, you know, I'm thinking of my, my old university and probably many people's colleges, many people's high schools. If you have to put up something that's like the grass was just treated, don't walk on it. Is that safe? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like I always see those signs. I'm like, what is this doing here? Why? Yeah. And what's the difference between, you know, Thursday and Friday where it's like, well, don't go on it for 72 hours. Like, yes, there is there there is a time where like it becomes more safe. But what are we doing here that we're just like, well, don't go on the lawn for three days. Like it's probably longer than three days before it's completely safe. And, and even so in that time, it's going to linger. It's going to seep into the, the uh, groundwater. It's going to seep into the plants. Like I'm in case you can't tell by listening, I'm not really a big treating your lawn guy. I, I live in an apartment. I don't have a lawn if we eventually move out and, and get a house, I'm all in on like native plantings and wildflowers and not really doing the whole like spraying weeds with something that's going to make my family sick, but yeah. <laughs> you know, or you'll just use gasoline like a real person. Yeah. Just light it on fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually like a real trick that my grandma used to use. But anyway, what I don't like about this is they just paid a billion and a half in damages and yet they're still maintaining. No, we have decades of studies um, showing that this is uh, still safe for human use. You can use it. Don't worry. Like, dude, I, I don't care how, how like recent those, those studies are. Do it again. Like do it again. And, and let's, let's do it like in a third party lab. Yeah. That's what I was going to add. You know what I mean? Like, this is just ridiculous. Like people aren't getting cancer just from the ground. Like this is coming from your product and lawyers have been able to prove it. So like, yeah. And let's put this in a way that makes even more sense to, to people listening. You and I think we have the best environmental news podcast in the world, but we do of, of course, of course they think their product is safe. Of course they're looking at statistics that make their product look safer. Yeah. Of course they're looking and cherry picking this data purposely to convince everyone else that it's safe. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not a secret. So, you know, I could go on and on about this for another 15 minutes I think our, uh, I think we both could. Yeah. I think our, our best bet is let's move on and not turn this into a 50 minute episode. Yeah, let's do it. We'll, we'll save it for another one another day. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from the Associated Press where Daniel Shaler writes, adopt an Aholotul campaign launches in Mexico to save iconic species. All right. I will be using the Americanized version of the word for the rest of this because, uh, because we can. Last Friday, Mexico's National Autonomous University relaunched a fundraiser called Adopt an Axolotl to help boost conservation efforts for the iconic species. The campaign asked for as little as $35 or 600 pesos to virtually adopt the small fish-like salamander. 
You can also buy one of the animals dinner for a smaller donation. The Mexican ajolotl population has decreased 99.5% in the last two decades, according to the ecologists behind the fundraiser. They ran this fundraiser last year and were able to raise roughly $26,000 for use on a captive breeding program and a habitat restoration project in a southern borough of Mexico City, located in ancient Aztec canals. So currently, almost all 18 species of axolotl in Mexico are critically endangered because of habitat loss, water pollution, and most recently, invasive rainbow trout populations and this deadly amphibian fungus. Uh, A recent study found less than 1,000 Mexican axolotls left in the wild. But luckily, axolotls have become a bit of a cultural icon in Mexico because of their unique appearance and their ability to regrow limbs, which is something the article points out. I say luckily because, you know, this is the kind of species that people will rally behind. This is the kind of thing where it has everything going for it, right? It's it's small. It's cute. Yep. It looks very unique. And if you haven't seen a picture of an axolotl, go check it out. There's some linked in the show notes, but they're just like really cute little animals that I, I, the way that the article described it, which I I posted in here when we're doing the summary, just a small fish like salamander is the best way to describe it. But yeah, you know, it's also something that lives in Mexico and I feel like the Mexican people will be able to really get behind that and say, Hey, this is one of us, right? This is, it's, it's not one of our people, but it's one of the animals that makes up, who we all are. Yeah, absolutely. And they are extremely cute, like you said, and they always look like they're smiling. Yeah. Like in every picture, they look like they're just like grinning ear to ear, which is really freaking cute. Um, But the author writes that Mexico City's expanding urbanization has damaged the water quality of the canals, while rainbow trout that escape farms can displace ajolotls from lakes and eat their food. Yeah, I I know we we really harbored on this, but like this is a a special animal that, is pretty much almost entirely wiped out and kudos to the researchers that are working on this and saying that, Hey, it's not too late. And here's what we're going to do. Here's the fundraiser we're going to run. And we've all seen these fundraisers, right? Like you could adopt a shark and you get a little tag and it shows you where your shark is traveling to <laughs> adopting an animal in spirit. It is a common fundraiser, but you know, it makes you feel good, right? It makes you feel good to get those pictures once a month of the manatee you adopted in Florida or the elephant that you adopted in Tanzania, like it's it's cool to see that this is yours. So I love that this is the campaign that they're running. We saw the last time that they ran this campaign, it raised twenty six thousand dollars. Yeah. What's what's stopping them from raising more? Yeah. Come on. Buy buy a little guy a dinner. Yeah. I mean that's freaking awesome. Yeah. If you can't, it's probably like the littlest piece of food, but it like makes him completely full. You don't want to buy him dinner. Yeah. Come if on. you can't afford the thirty five dollars to adopt one, then like Nick said, buy him dinner. Buy him dinner. Another quick challenge that I do just want to make note of before we close this one out, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador gave 35% less money to the Mexican Environment Department in his six-year term than his predecessor did. And this includes an 11% funding cut for its Environment Department that was just approved. If you are so inclined to help try to save the axolotls, which I would just describe as silly little guys, go hit the link in your show notes. Yeah, for sure. Check that out. Buy them dinner. Like I said, it's a simple gesture. The, the summary of today's show is buy an axolotl dinner and let John Kerry cook. <laughs> that is it for this week's TPT. We'll be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. 
Nick Chinusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people bump your tunes all holiday season long? You can bump them at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.